if 10% of US public company treasuries were put into Bitcoin, Bitcoin would be worth $400,000 of Bitcoin. What's going on, guys? Today I spoke with uh, Dan Held. Dan is the growth marketer over at uh, at Kraken, but much better known for just being a real Bitcoin OG. We got into a, a crazy conversation about Bitcoin's super cycle and just kind of what's going what's going to happen in this bull market. Dan lays out two thoughts on the super cycle that happens in the second half of the conversation. So if you want to hear thoughts just on the super cycle jump to the second half of the conversation. If you're more interested in what's happening with mining, Elon, China, hash rate leaving China, that's kind of what we discussed in the first part of the conversation. So either way, I think you'll enjoy the entire episode. Dan is an OG, really smart guy. If you like this and you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple or iTunes or Spotify, punch the subscribe and give us five stars. All right, jumping in. Dan. It is uh, so nice to have you here, my friend. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a little while. It has been a while. It has been a while. I'm looking forward to uh, to Miami next week. It should be a good time. I'm uh, mentally prepping my my liver and expectations of all the different happy hours and dinners. I think I've got like three or four a night. So just trying to, trying to mentally prepare myself and my liver for the uh, the conference. It should be fun, though. Yeah, you basically have like. 10, 000, I think it was 12,000. Last time I talked to the Bitcoin mag guys, it's 12,000 people who haven't seen each other in like 18 months and whose net worths just went up like 5 to 10x. So it should be an <laughs> interesting little time. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, let's jump right in. This is going to be a crazy, this is a two-part series. First time we've ever done this. There was just so much I wanted to cover with you. Before we jump into energy, FUD, Elon Musk, Bitcoin super cycle, all that exciting stuff. Can you just give a background on yourself, how long you've been in space, what you did pre-Bitcoin, and then we'll dive right in. Sure. Uh, so I, uh, my Bitcoin journey started with studying finance in undergrad during the 2008 financial crisis. That very much molded and, and um, you know crafted my perspective of trust in the existing financial system. Then my first job, I worked at a small investment firm in Dallas. They relocated me to San Francisco. In San Francisco, you know, I was into Bitcoin already. This is back in 2012. Moved to San Francisco in early 13. I was the only non-technical person at the meetup in San Francisco. There's only a dozen of us, included Jesse Powell from Kraken, the CEO of Kraken, Fred and Brian, the co-founders of Coinbase, Charlie Lee, founder of Litecoin. So that's that was the small community in San Francisco that I was a part of in January 2013 when Bitcoin was $10. Bitcoin skyrocketed to 260 in March, and that's when I decided to go enter into tech and build my first product called ZeroBlock. It was the most popular mobile app back in the day. We got bought by blockchain.com. I was the first PM there. Also product manager at another crypto startup. And then I went to Uber, where I worked on Rider Growth on, on Andrew Chen's team, Rider Growth. Um, and then uh, left Uber, came back to crypto, co-founded a company called Interchange, and we got acquired by Kraken. At Kraken, uh, Kraken, one of the biggest and oldest exchanges in the space. I lead growth marketing, which is user acquisition. Uh, a lot of data stuff, a lot of growth stuff. It makes sense. You're like the uh, the coldest, I would say the coldest, most like calm pumper of Bitcoin I've, I've ever seen. There's a lot of people who are on Twitter, like always pumping the Bitcoin bags. And you're uh, a very rational optimist, I guess I'd call it. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the crypto space has so many narratives that ebb and flow and there are a lot of them really disconnected from reality so 
I like to try to go back to, you know, what problem is Bitcoin solving and looking at metrics that, that track along that. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, jump right into it. Big narrative right now. Energy. What's going on in the... Uh, why is this such a big narrative? Where did this come from? Why weren't we hearing about Bitcoin's energy impact two years ago? Why, why is this? Why is everyone freaking out right now? Yeah, FUD or fear, uncertainty and doubt around Bitcoin's energy consumption has been a persistent narrative since I'd say 2013. It picked up pace in 2015 uh, due to Vitalik and others promoting it as a uh, promoting proof of stake versus proof of work and using proof of works energy consumption as a negative, as a way to virtue signal the, um, the, the validity of proof of stake systems. So th that's when the energy FUD really started to pick up, or at least when I noticed it. There could have been a lot of other factors, and I may not remember history correctly, but that's when I remember the energy FUD really starting to pick up pace. The energy FUD recently has definitely hit a crescendo in terms of Elon Musk tweeted some very negative things about Bitcoin's energy consumption. Um, I find the whole narrative a little bit, <laughs> a little bit silly, um, and we can dig into various elements of that, but that's kind of the history of energy FUD is that it wasn't really existent in the beginning. Starting around 2015, we started to see that narrative come out a little bit more. You know, most of the time when we see this reported, it has, you know, there, there, almost every single time it's reported, there are objectively wrong, there's objectively wrong information or data used. Um, so we can, which, which part do we want to unpack first? We can unpack, um, kind of the argument itself. We can unpack a few other things. What are you thinking? Well, I didn't realize that it kind of stemmed from 2015, actually. So basically Vitalik uh, and the proof of stake crowd was using this as a marketing tactic, no different from like Oatly, the oat milk, oat milk company saying, you know, regular milk is bad for you, right? It was basically a, a, a smear campaign against, uh, against the competitor. Yeah, I think that it was a combination of that, probably a combination of that and a few other things, but definitely seemed that when proof of proof of stake was coming out, the, the FUD or the narrative that proof of work was really wasteful or inefficient, that really started to pick up, at, at least to the best of my memory. Interesting. All right. So Elon sends out that big tweet. So Elon's into Bitcoin, gets Tesla to get into Bitcoin. Then, you know, the Dogecoin stuff starts picking up. What happened? So Elon sends out a tweet and then that you think kicked off the whole environment uh, argument? Yeah. So Elon sends out a, a string of very bizarre tweets. He first tweets that we're still going to hold Bitcoin, but we're not going to accept Bitcoin as a payment due to its high energy consumption, which is a little weird because Bitcoin blocks uh, that are that require energy to be created aren't just validating transactions, they're also minting new coins. So it's it's somewhat of the same thing. It also protects the existing ledger of all historical transactions. So to you can't like just isolate Bitcoin's energy consumption to new transactions. It doesn't make any sense. So that was pretty nonsensical. And then Elon started to go into a whole string of, of very bizarre tweets around that Dogecoin is more efficient. And he basically said a lot of statements that showed that he doesn't understand how blockchain scalability works, that like you can't scale on layer one, that scalability should be pushed up into higher and higher layers. Um, so that was really bizarre. And then, um, you know, he talked about how Tesla hadn't sold any Bitcoin. So he's fudding Bitcoin while not selling any. And at the same time, demonstrating he has no idea how the how the technology works. And I think there's only a couple different explanations for this one. He didn't do any due diligence when he bought Bitcoin, which I would find rather bizarre to spend $1.5 billion 
on Bitcoin without doing any due diligence at all. I mean, the, the information that he that he highlighted in his <laughs> in his uh, statements were you learn this your first week. It's it's not hard. Um, and, and Elon's obviously brilliant, right? So I find that the least plausible explanation. The explanation B is that he's trolling. I think that's pretty plausible. He likes to troll, and I think he some of the statements seemed obviously like trolling. And also, also Elon replied to one of my tweets a few weeks prior to this incident, and he laughed at an energy Bitcoin uses too much energy joke that I made. So, you know, he's really all all across the board here. And so the joking or trolling seems to be pretty plausible. And then finally, it's a virtue signal or commercial reason. Uh, for example, Tesla gets certain uh, subsidies from the government due to its uh, electric uh, due to producing electric cars and those being deemed as environmentally friendly. So, you know, I would say it's a mixture of B and C. It's either trolling or there's more there's bigger commercial objectives here. Um, and so, yeah, the, he, he espoused all these tweets that were basically nonsensical. The Bitcoin community got riled up naturally. Bitcoin's community is its its white blood cells, its defense mechanism. And they were, you know, rallied to go fight this FUD. And, you know, that launched into a huge kind of um, huge debate on Twitter between Elon, Bitcoiners, Dogecoiners. Um, you know, for, there's another bizarre tweet where Elon says he's talking to the engineers of the the core devs of Doge. There are no core devs of Doge. <laughs> so, you know, that's where that has to be trolly, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe he's just literally sitting there and, and tweeting has no idea how crypto works. But that's the that's my best summation of what happened. It's a it's hard to pick apart and compress into a two minute little summary there. But I think that that paints the picture pretty well. So, so what's he scheming up here? I mean, so, I mean, I, I was, I was at a dinner Saturday night and my friends were all kind of coming down on me saying, there's no way that you're smarter than Elon Musk. There's no way that you, I was giving the, you know, kind of Nick regurgitating. I won't say I created these arguments, but regurgitating our, uh, our Lord and savior, Nick Carter's arguments. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, my, you know, they were basically saying like, there's no possible way that you understand this better than Elon Musk does. Right. Very smart energy guy. So, I mean, I'm, I agree with you. It's probably not number one. He probably does understand this. You said the third option is maybe there's a big commercial uh, end goal here. I mean, do you think that Tesla slash another Elon Musk company ends up rolling out like more environmentally friendly miners or something like that? Sure. We could see productization of this green energy narrative. We could see... Um, we could see them get more government contracts due to them signaling that they're more environmentally friendly. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that we could look at this from a commercial perspective. It would be very interesting to see Tesla get into like Bitcoin mining or, or anything like that. But I mean, they'd have to go build a foundry. And I think that's a massive effort and pretty, pretty different than their core business. Um, so I'm not sure if they'd really get into that. Uh, but maybe there's something to do with solar there. I, I don't know. It's it's so bizarre what he did that it's it's hard to like... Some people joke that it's like the TV show series Lost. Like you're hoping there's like some sort of like grand theme there, <laughs> but it just it's it's actually just more random than anything. And so I think with Elon, like we expect there to be this genius behind the madness. And for some of his commercial products, there is, but for things that aren't his commercial products, like his his companies, maybe there's not. Maybe it's just kind of a maybe like to option A. It's just a it's just a big or, or like option A and B. He either doesn't know or it's it's just a joke to him. It's all part of the simulation, right? <laughs> yeah, I believe in simulation theory too. Maybe Elon's the uh, the, the wild simulation uh, trajectory that we're on.
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's dive into the energy argument a little more if you want to go there. I mean, obviously, sure. um, there, there are, I think there are two ways to look at the energy argument and that's why it becomes so messy and complicated. Basically you can look at it from a narrative perspective, which is how marketing and how that, you know, our world works, right. Or you can look at it from a quantifiable perspective and you can start saying things like 73 or 76% of Bitcoin mining is done with renewable energy. Unfortunately, no one really cares about the quantifiable data. And I think what ends up happening is it's more of a narrative game where it's kind of like, yeah, Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. That's correct. Do you think that it's valuable enough, a valuable enough system to use the energy or not? Right. So I don't, I don't know. I'm curious to see if that's how you think about it or if you view it differently. Yeah. So for those who don't know, the core root of the argument is that Bitcoin's energy usage is excessive and that it should be stopped because it is wasting energy and that's environmentally unfriendly. So let's go dive into this. Well, one, Bitcoin's energy consumption is doing something useful. That's ultimately the core root of the argument uh, from the detractors is that they don't find that Bitcoin is doing something useful, so they consider it wasteful. I find this absolutely fucking stupid as people think through all of their own existing energy consumption. Like when you go watch the Kardashians or you drive XYZ car, you buy a hamburger versus chicken, you don't care what the energy mix is. No one ever asks you how, what percentage of that is generated by renewables. That would be absurd. Not only do you not know, but it's also irrelevant. I paid for it. I don't give a shit where it comes from. Like, yeah, you might give a shit. And if you do, go ahead and go buy those sort of uh, the greener energies. So I think with, with uh, the extra scrutiny on Bitcoin, the core root of it, 99% of the time, is that they hate Bitcoin. They hate Bitcoin and they, don't, they wouldn't recognize any energy consumption as valid. So that's ultimately the argument. That's the core root of it. They find that Bitcoin isn't val They think that they subjectively think that Bitcoin isn't doing something valuable. So any energy consumption is wasteful. But here's a couple of different ways to, to look at it and from a, from a more um, data-driven analytical perspective. Well, one, Bitcoin uses far less energy than the existing financial system, which it is looking to replace. The existing financial system has commercial bank branches that are physical and those required energy to be built. And people go physically work in those offices, offices and those humans require food. And then you have the bank servers, and then you have the treasury, and then you have the Fed, and you have all the people that work there. And then you have the payment processors, and then you have all the payment processing machines and all the electricity that they use. And you go on and on, and it's this massive amount of energy. And then for contract enforcement in this existing system, because you don't have smart contracts, you don't have a blockchain that has a, a record that can't be reversed, you have the court system that enforces contracts. And then you have a military that enforces the dollar or another fiat currency. And those are enormous amounts of energy and enormous amounts of cost. So to look at Bitcoin and then look at the existing financial system without first scrutinizing the, the existing financial system clearly shows the bias. So that's what I always ask is people, if people worry about Bitcoin's energy consumption, I'm like, great, um, I'm environmentally conscious as well. Why aren't you examining your existing uh, government currency? Let's start there first. And then we'll, then we'll look at Bitcoin. Of course, no one does that. Not one journalist does that. Never. I've never seen a journalist ever do that. So, you know, I think that <laughs> it's so bizarre, like to, to have this hatred for Bitcoin, this unnecessary hatred and, and, and make it really, you know, come down really critically on it. The second data point is the energy mix. So a lot of people complain that Bitcoin's energy consumption. So they're like, okay, fine. Bitcoin consumes energy. That's fine. 
but the energy mix is not okay. Bitcoin actually uses a relatively high amount of renewable energy. So it's between like 30 and 70%. That number fluctuates based on various methods to go calculate it. It can never be 100% solid, but that's the general range. Bitcoin miners can be placed anywhere in the world. You can place Bitcoin miners in the middle of nowhere, Antarctica. It doesn't matter because all they need is energy. They need energy and an internet connection, which they can use via satellite. So Bitcoin miners hunt for the cheapest electricity anywhere in the world. They're sort of like, uh, they're, the, they're kind of like they, they eat the scraps, the energy scraps that would have otherwise gone wasted. So Bitcoin doesn't compete for the energy consumption of your dishwasher or anything in an urban area or any use, use of in the, on the industrial side. Basically, Bitcoin miners are only willing to pay the least amount of money for electricity anywhere in the world, which, mean that, which means that Bitcoin miners harness a bunch of wasted electricity, which is phenomenal. That's a great thing for uh, Bitcoin to do is take this energy that would have otherwise gone wasted and utilize it. Um, but when we dig into the energy mix argument, a lot of folks worry that, oh, Bitcoin uses dirty energy. Well, <laughs> it doesn't matter if it, <laughs> it's not Bitcoin's fault that the existing Elect, like the existing energy energy infrastructure cre has bad energy, like it has dirty energy. That's not Bitcoin's fault. Bitcoin didn't like induce that. Bitcoin didn't create that. Bitcoin is just buying the excess capacity. Um, and then for, further, furthermore, when people worry about Bitcoin's energy consumption, they worry. And so they're like, okay, fine. It uses energy. And then and they're like, okay, well, what percentage is green? I'm like, well, what the hell percentage is green of your TV or like your vacation home? I mean, it's just so bizarre. And like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to live in a world where I have to go defend my electricity consumption morally for every single time I breathe, right? Like, what was the energy mix of the cameras that we're using right now to talk to each other? What's the energy mix of this light? What's the energy mix of the, the bar behind me or your shirt? Who cares, right? Like, this virtue signally rabbit hole would be endless. We would endlessly have to signal our virtue of how virtuous our energy consumption is on a per item or per service basis, which is not only impossible, but just not worth anyone's time. Totally. Let me play devil's advocate. Let me use some of the other, the other side of this. Let me use their argument here. Um, one of the arguments would be that Bitcoin mining, um, obviously renewable energy is a cheap form of energy, but there's also other cheap forms of energy such as coal, right? So there are some big mining shops out there that are bringing old coal mining factories back online just for Bitcoin mining. What are your thoughts on that? Great. So 1% of Bitcoin's energy consumption might be coal or 2%. And then what percentage is bringing back coal production for everything else in the world, right? That's, I mean, have you, do you know how many t-shirts, how much coal mining was brought back to mint your t-shirt? No one cares. Right. It's, I like the uh, I like I like the picture uh, going around this week of the the apple. I think it was the apple mines um, where they're mining the, um, the the chip that goes in your in your iPhone. I forget the, what, yeah. what the uh, what it's actually called. You, and it's you've got all sorts horror field. Any sort of hardware devices require enormous amounts of of different metals, and those metals are dug in these huge huge mining operations that are very hazardous to the environment. Do people, as people virtue signal, you know, people are the far, the far left environmentalists are, are virtue signaling on their iPhones, which is comprised of all this metal that, <laughs> you know, that's the thing is like, if you challenge any, none of this is, is real. It's not a real argument. It's just a virtue signal argument that's rooted in very subjective reality. Like 
There's no, <laughs> it's a 100% subjective because if we go down and do an audit of an individual's energy consumption and where their goods come from, no one is, no one is immune from, um, from touching dirty energy. And so Bitcoin, the, the idea that Bitcoin should, it should be even argued that Bitcoin is being wasteful. One is a dumb argument because Bitcoin is doing something very useful and uh, every energy consumption is subjective. I consider that watching the Kardashians wasteful, but I'm not going to go, um, you know, criticize someone for watching the Kardashians. And number two is like the energy mix argument of like, okay, well, Bitcoin is doing something useful, but it's doing it in a manner that uses bad energy. We don't hold that, that standard to anything else. <laughs> I mean, how about the U.S. military? Half a trillion dollars a year spent. They have massive tanks and aircraft carriers powered by nuclear power. I mean, nuclear power is pretty green, by the way. But, you know, like <laughs> it's just such a bizarre conversation to have. That's where I think that, you know, as I've spent the last five years really debating this with a lot of folks, it's about the fact that they don't respect Bitcoin and they think it's wasteful no matter what. And that's where I typically attack that part of the argument versus debating them on metrics. They don't care about the data. They don't care about the actual energy mix. They might say that they do, but they don't. Because even if you brought Bitcoin up to 100% green energy, then they just go back to the argument that it's not doing something useful and that we should have been using the energy for something else. So that's where, unlike Nick Carter, Nick Carter tries to argue the data-driven methodology of defending Bitcoin's narrative. I respect him for doing that. At the same time, I don't think that's going to win the argument because you just have these virtue signalers who don't care about the data. If they did, they would have criticized the U.S. government and other forms of energy of energy wastefulness. Like when you stack rank energy consumption in the world, Bitcoin of like different types of items or com countries or companies, Bitcoin isn't even in the top 10. So why don't we go tackle those first? But of course they don't. They just subjectively yeah. pick out Bitcoin. They're like, I don't like this thing. It's silly. I don't like Bitcoin. It's wasting energy. You need to stop. So what, I'm curious. So what's your go-to when, you know, you're, okay, so you're having the Bitcoin energy conversation. You say, look, it's really not about the energy. It's about whether or not you find Bitcoin valuable. So they turn it around on you and they say, okay, Dan, I don't understand Bitcoin. This is not the time to try to understand Bitcoin, but why is it, why is it valuable? Isn't it just this kind of asset that like everyone's buying into and the price is going up and there's rocket ship emojis on Twitter? Like, why is this thing valuable? Yeah, Bitcoin solves the problem of trust with financial markets. As Satoshi wrote about when he first launched it, uh, central banks have to be trusted not to debase the currency and banks have to be trusted to hold our money without lending it out too aggressively. And that's why he launched it during the 2008 financial crisis was to provide us a trust minimized or like, you know, a very, very low level of trust. Uh, we just have to trust in the Bitcoin mathematics and protocol and the engineering of it, which is open source and everyone can audit it and has worked perfectly for the last 10 years. Um, you know, we, we're, what we're really doing here is replacing trust. And when we do that, we also replace storing value because that's like the base layer of trust here is store value assets like gold, like a bearer asset. Then you have non-bearer assets that are stores of value like government bonds, um, so treasuries, treasuries, uh, fiat currency, um, uh, real estate. These are all considered stores of value and Bitcoin competes for those. So Bitcoin's total value of what it's actually worth and the value that it brings to the world is equivalent to tens or hundreds of trillions of dollars of value, making it one of the largest TAMs or total addressable markets that any new protocol or product could solve for. So that's the usefulness that Bitcoin brings. It, it removes trust from the financial system to where we can build a more efficient world where uh, individuals, governments, companies don't have as much influence over your money and no one has the influence over how you store your money or how you transfer your money, which enables everyone to be freer.
So I think that is is a hundred trillion dollar problem that Bitcoin is solving. So energy consumption to the tune of billions of dollars worth of energy a year, I think is extremely efficient and high ROI. Sounds like you've given that uh, that explanation once or twice. I've been having this debate for a long time. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy Nick is diving deeply into it and defending it because yeah. it's, it gets a little tiring after this long. All right, you talk about influence. So uh, one of the other things that's happening right now is there's a lot of news coming out of China, right? So China's cracking down on crypto. What the actual impact of this looks to be is that Chinese miners might start leaving China and maybe taking their kind of hash rate elsewhere. Can you explain what's going on in this environment? Like what, what, what this news is, I think at a high level, and then actually dig a little deeper and say what it means. Yeah, so the Chinese, China banning Bitcoin narrative has been around for quite some time. This is about the 30th time that China has banned Bitcoin. Unfortunately, due to my lack of understanding of local politics and, and government relations, I can't qualify exactly what this time means. From what I've heard from other people, uh, this time does mean that Bitcoin miners and how they're interpreting the regulation or potential regulation is serious enough that they're reconsidering mining in China. Um, again, there's vast geopolitical reasons as to why this might exist. I don't know enough about Chinese culture to, to comment on like why the miners may or may not perceive this as a legitimate concern. But um, from the best of my understanding, these Chinese miners are going to move out of China. So what that means is that global hash rate will move out of China and that will, uh, as Nick Carter has put it eloquently, it'll solve two FUD pieces. Uh, so one is that Bitcoin is controlled by China, which it never was, but that is a popular narrative because there's a lot of Bitcoin mining in China. Uh, miners don't control Bitcoin, but most press don't really grok that. Um, and then number two is that Bitcoin mining is dirty because it comes from Chinese coal. Well. Uh, with the transparency of miners and other geos and the uh, better, more greener energy mix in other geos, that concern should also fade away. So Bitcoin miners moving out of China due to new Chinese regulations should be a great thing for Bitcoin as it changes the narrative and solves and sort of conquers those two pieces of FUD. Now, again, in this world, no facts don't matter at all. <laughs> um, you know, facts don't matter at all. So we'll see if, if that meme or the narrative actually catches on and is believed by the world. Just because it's true doesn't mean people will necessarily believe it. So we'll see over the next couple of years if that narrative that China controls Bitcoin or Chinese or that Chinese coal powers Bitcoin, if those narratives die or if the press, like it has typically done, continues to um, print uh, objectively false information. Um, so we'll remains to be seen. All right, guys, it's ad time. I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. There's one company that's powering a ton of the crypto data in the space and by crypto data, Basically, there's all these uh, companies, traditional financial institutions that need crypto data for you know, accounting purposes, for tracking the value of their assets, for running audits, right? And so there's one company, they're called Luka, L-U-K-K-A. I've talked about them on the podcast before. They're powering some of the largest businesses in the world in both the crypto and traditional financial services space. They're the primary pricing source used by S&P Dow Jones indices for their new crypto index. So I wanted to uh, just throw this out there. If you guys are any sort of business that needs to value crypto assets, 
create financial statements, uh, perform any sort of normal accounting audit process, you guys should head on over. It's Luca, L-U-K-K-A, Luca.tech, L-U-K-K-A dot T-E-C-H forward slash empire, or just head over to Luca.tech forward slash empire. Tell them I sent you, they'll take care of you. Alrighty, let me know what you think. The other day I posted on Twitter, I said, who's the best entrepreneur? Who's the entrepreneur that everyone should know in crypto, but maybe doesn't know already, right? We're not talking like the mainstream, the super big folks. Who's the best entrepreneur that's kind of under the radar in crypto? God, post went crazy. Got like 300, 400 comments. There was one name that kept popping up, JP Richardson. JP Richardson at Exodus. So I thought, man, that's crazy. Exodus is one of our sponsors. Let me call him out, right? So JP Richardson, CEO of Exodus, done an amazing job building one of crypto's most loved apps. And there's a number of reasons. They got a mobile app, they got a desktop app. You can instantly exchange over a hundred different currencies. They've got interactive charts. Uh, they're fully integrated with uh, the Trezor hardware wallet, so you can always be secure. So if you're looking to buy crypto, if you're looking to just get away from just buying one or two currencies, you wanna explore other things, go to exodus.com forward slash empire, or just search Exodus in the uh, App Store or Play Store. Check them out, shoot me a DM on Twitter, let me know what you thought, go follow JP Richardson, go check out Exodus. All right, exodus.com forward slash empire. Do you think that, or I guess, if you have you looked at the data to on I don't know I don't know if it's on Coin Metrics or where it, where it is to see if hash rates actually leaving China yet, or is this kind of speculation right now that it will happen? Um, you know, I'm not paying as close attention to it on chain or using any sort of like data driven method to look at if Chinese miners are leaving China. Um, I know Nick Carter's been looking at it a little bit, so I think he has seen things move, and he mentioned this on Twitter a few days ago but I haven't actually looked at the data myself. Got it. What about a, um, uh, someone else, actually three people wrote in when I said, I'm having Dan Held on the show. And they said, can you ask him about a 51% attack and how Chinese, uh, having less Chinese miners maybe makes it less of a risk of a 51% attack. Can you just explain what this question is and, and get into the weeds of it a little bit? Yeah, essentially the argument behind it or the idea behind a 51% attack is if a certain uh, party controls 51% of the hash rate, they can start to manipulate uh, transactions and do um, double spends. Double spends would be trying to spend the same Bitcoin in two different transactions. So they could try to rewrite the chain to some degree um, where the uh, the coin is spent uh, on uh, coin is spent initially, then they rewrite history and, and have it actually spent somewhere else. So the 51% attacks, you know, this has never occurred on Bitcoin. Um, just to be clear, just to make sure everyone knows that this hasn't happened before. Um, some of the game theory behind this, essentially, Bitcoin miners purchase their hardware called ASICs. These are machines that only can mine Bitcoin. And then electricity is pumped through them. And then uh, essentially the, the miner takes energy and converts that into Bitcoin. And they're rewarded via the block reward uh, in Bitcoin. So it's a, it's a Bitcoin miner you can think of as a machine that prints Bitcoin. Um, and miners have to expend the value and have to have an upfront cost to buy the machine and the upfront cost of the electricity before they get rewarded in the Bitcoin. Bitcoin's ledger, the blockchain, is enforced based on the game theoretic security where miners, given that if they messed with the ordering of transactions, would make the value of Bitcoin worth a lot less that they would be burning their future cash flows that they would earn in Bitcoin. So that's the basic game theory that protects Bitcoin, is that the machines that print money, these miners, 
that the, they won't act badly because the only uh, value that they receive uh, in, after spending all this upfront cost is to receive Bitcoin. So they wouldn't want to damage the ordering of transactions or trust in the protocol. Um, and so far, that game theory has held true. So to do a 51% attack, you'd have to control 51% of the hash rate. That's extremely difficult to do. Um, first, you'd have to find where the miners are, and that's superbly difficult as like, how do you tell what a data center is versus a Bitcoin mining operation? Um, you know, you've also got like Bitcoin miners can operate behind Tor, so you don't even know exactly who they are, where they're coming from. Um, and so Bitcoin mining to seize 50, so the only effective way to do it would be a government produces a whole bunch of new ASICs or seizes 51%. Um, the seizing part would be extremely difficult. Um, and even with even if you were able to accomplish all this, there's still a bunch of other game theory that protects Bitcoin. For example, like the 51% attack, you know, there's a bunch of honest machines that have different game theoretic attack vectors that they could start to implement that would uh, change the outcome a little bit. Um, you've also got, you know, some last ditch efforts, which would be around like changing the mining algorithm, which would make all the machines worthless. So basically the Bitcoin network is protected by the, the uh, like uh, I would say like somewhat annualized basis of all of the mining equipment that Bitcoin uses and the energy consumption. So that puts like the game theoretic attack vector cost at the, at the level one game theory. Uh, there's a bunch of different levels to this. The level one at like in the tens of billions range, um, which makes it mm -hmm. only really achievable by l large state governments like um, like large states like China or, or the U.S. But again, these attacks wouldn't kill Bitcoin. There's a lot of ways to mitigate it. There's a lot of ways the honest miners could could fight it. So, but that's the premise of a 51% attack and and what the game theory is behind it. So my understanding is that it would be kind of bad for about 10 minutes, and then you you would just fork the chain and there would be a new Bitcoin chain. Do I understand that correctly? Are you talking like the last last ditch effort of changing the mining algorithm? Yeah, like if there was, if, if somebody could actually get that far, right? So if somebody could buy up 51% of the ASICs, which obviously you'd start seeing the price of ASICs go up. Like if someone could get actually that right. far, run, you know, get past all of the other things, not get noticed by the community that they're doing this, accumulate that much um, kind of mining power and pull this off, could they do it for 10 minutes and then the the kind of Bitcoin blockchain would get forked? Or, or you don't even think you could get that far? It's extremely unlikely they would get that far. And as Bitcoin grows in value, the value of the block reward increases, which also increases the amount of miners across the world and increases the security model. So um, it hasn't happened yet. Um, I find it very unlikely to happen, but let's say they did all that, got past the point of like, trying to buy up ASICs while everyone else is noticing and everything else, then, um, you know, they might just be able to reorganize transactions on the current tip of the chain. They wouldn't be able to rewrite all these transactions. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways that honest miners can fight back. I haven't dug into that as much as others. Uh, and then the last ditch effort would be to change the mining algorithm, SHA-256. Um, that would be the very last ditch effort because then there's sort of a whack-a-mole approach because they could, whatever new mining algorithm is created, this entity, if they have enough resources, could just buy up all of those miners as well. Um, so, but at the same time, it would be an extremely costly attack to the tune of tens of billions now. Um, in the future, it might cost a hundred billion plus. And as a government, it'd be very hard to, you know, justify an expense like that, especially since you would be attacking your own citizens it's estimated that 20% of American of American adults own Bitcoin. So I find that very unlikely that these governments would choose to attack it. 
uh, given that the um, ownership percentage in, in a lot of Western developed nations are, are very, very high. You ready to go full super cycle mode here? <laughs> Let, let's dive in. Yeah, let's get bullish. <laughs> That's what uh, I, uh, I know that we're going to get YouTube comments if we don't jump into the super cycle topics saying uh, I came for the super cycle. So we need to uh, we need to jump in here. So there's a lot I want to talk about. You hypothesized this thing called the super cycle, basically saying that this is not any normal Bitcoin cycle. You said it in the trenches of the bear market. I think it was 2019, if I recall. Um, can you just give it what is the super cycle? Yeah, so the original version of the supercycle was created back in October 2019. At, I first announced it at Riga. So it's a hypothesis that you've got these little microcycles, which are Bitcoin's four-year cycles, typically centered around halving. Halving is when Bitcoin's new coin issuance drops in half. This occurs over time until 21 million Bitcoin will be produced. It's hypothesized that the halvings create a, a situation where supply decreases, demand stays the same, price starts to climb, and that begins a bull run. Um, it's all, it's a hypothesis. We don't know 100% sure if that's how it works, but it's done it so far. Um, with these microcycles, uh, 2012, 2016, and 2020 were the halvings, and the corresponding bull runs typically about a year later have been largely during a macro um, you know, bull, bull market in the mainstream economy. We haven't had a recession or a depression for a long time. So Bitcoin has had these these bull runs and then the top blows off and then it cools down in a bear market and it does it again and again. And this time though, we were well poised for a recession to occur. We had been overdue for a recession. And so my original hypothesis was what happens when Bitcoin has a bull run during a recession? Um, you know, in that moment when Bitcoin, when people realize they need Bitcoin because people don't realize they need a lifeboat until all of a sudden there's a storm and they're like, you know what, I, want, I really need a seat on that lifeboat. Um, you know, what happens when there's a recession and people stop trusting their governments and they need something else to trust? That's when Bitcoin really shines. So I hypothesized this in 2019 before COVID hit as like what happens if there's a recession or depression while Bitcoin has a bull run uh, or during close to Bitcoin's bull run cycle. Well, it happened with COVID. And COVID hit that to a degree I, I never, ever would have expected. $25 trillion printed across the world was beyond even a fathomable money printing operation when I originally came up with the super cycle thesis. So uh, that very much was a huge thumbs up for like a potential super cycle that we could have a recession or depression while there is a Bitcoin bull run and that people would come to recognize the value of Bitcoin. So that was the first big check mark for it. And then... Um, you know, I would say like the other component of the super cycle that I highlighted in 2019 was was around the institutions, that what happens when institutions come into the space? These are big banks, hedge funds, uh, Tesla, treasuries, um, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, pension funds. What happens if they start to recognize Bitcoin as gold 2.0? We're, we're not going to have a normal cycle then. You know, we're not going to have the typical cycle we have where it was just retail traders and a very small audience. We could have the whole world. Um, and we could have all these institutions, which, man which manage tons of people's money and the institutions bring, bring pedigree. A lot of retail traders won't trade Bitcoin until the institutions give it a thumbs up. And so once that happens, you unlock more retail traders. And that's what gives this cycle a lot of buying power, which means that the price could go much higher. So uh, what happened was um, we did see institutions come into Bitcoin. In 2020 and 2021, the institutions have finally arrived into a degree that... 
I, I didn't expect treasuries to uh, companies to come in with their treasuries and start buying Bitcoin like Tesla and and Square. And that was just incredible to see. So, you know, the institutions coming in are a big signal for the super cycle as well, because it totally changes the dynamic of how much money can flow into this space and, and what size. You know, some of these pension funds have a minimum of a billion dollar investment, right? That's a lot of buying power to buy Bitcoin. And that, that means that Bitcoin's price needs to move up to accommodate all these new market participants. Um, uh, ARK Invest did an analysis where if 10% of U.S. public company treasuries were put into Bitcoin, Bitcoin would be worth $400,000 of Bitcoin. And that's just the company treasuries. That's not hedge funds. That's not sovereign that wealth funds. Say that again. If 10% of U.S. corporate treasuries bought Bitcoin. That's right. Bitcoin would go to 400000 $400, yeah, if we took the aggregate value of all these cash equivalent values in these treasuries and use that to buy Bitcoin, mm. Bitcoin would be at $400,000 in Bitcoin. So that's, you know, that's how big these institutions are. It's just a little bit of that flow into Bitcoin makes the price dramatically different. So uh, the institutions have arrived. Even as of yesterday, Ray Dalio said he bought Bitcoin, which is an incredible, incredible achievement to have him, Paul Tudor Jones, um, Stanley Druckenmiller, and you've got all these uh, classic pedigreed uh, big institutional guys who are now like, yeah, Bitcoin's gold 2.0. You even have the Fed, Jerome Powell, saying Bitcoin is a, is a speculative store of value. I mean, this is incredible. The whole world is recognizing Bitcoin as a new gold. I think that's what Bitcoin has been waiting for its entire time, at least that's how long I've been waiting. I've been waiting nine years to hear that being said. So this bull run, that's the narrative, which is perfect narrative market fit for Bitcoin's value that it brings. Um, so we've got that combined with the micro and macro cycles and then also narratives. So like Bitcoin in 2017 was fighting the Bitcoin cash narrative that Bitcoin was supposed to be useful for payments, which split the community up into Bitcoin cash and Bitcoiners. Um, Bitcoin cash was crushed and Bitcoin is the only remaining narrative, but there's also a narrative back then too, of the ETH flipping that like ETH would flip in Bitcoin. And that narrative has faded away. It has risen a little bit recently, but I don't find it to be a, a valid narrative. I don't think ETH competes at all as a store of value versus Bitcoin. It's more like an oil. It's more like a utility, right? So um, I think we have perfect narrative market fit for Bitcoin. And that narrative is understandable by anyone. And that narrative has a ton of content around it. So Bitcoin's, uh, you know, before, like when I got into Bitcoin, there wasn't, any, there were no podcasts. There were no main, there was no uh, news websites. There were no, <laughs> no YouTube channels, none, none of that. I got on Bitcoin talk forums and started to read there. So um, now there's so much content out there. You've got like my content, we've got your content. There's so many great pieces of content like Blockworks is a phenomenal set of content creators. Um, and that's where I think that, you know, when people hear about Bitcoin, they get converted from hearing about Bitcoin to buying Bitcoin at a much higher rate than it was before. Because the what it was before is someone really had to be had, a, had, had to be really interested in Bitcoin to come and get into the space. And now it's like, Oh, well, I'm casually interested. Oh, here's some great content. Oh, now I get it. Instead of spending eight months, I spend eight weeks. So I think that's a big driver as well for a super cycle theory is that the conversion rate of people hearing about Bitcoin into buying Bitcoin should be much higher. I think we could uh, we could coin a new term on the podcast, which is uh, just Bitcoin time to purchase, which is the first time someone hears about Bitcoin. Uh, how long does it take them them to finally pull the trigger? As a growth marketing guy, I love that thinking. Yeah, what's our, <laughs> if we were to look at the average Bitcoin time to purchase rate, I bet that has dropped over time. 
uh, or duration, sorry, duration would probably be the metric here of time, right? I bet that has, has dropped significantly. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of people too, where Bitcoin is sort of a multi-touch attribution. Like we need to think about Bitcoin in terms of a multi-touch attribution model. Like it isn't necessarily the last podcast that you read that converted you. It's a series of podcasts that you read and then the last one finally pushed you over the edge, but you were 80% there. So a lot of this I think is repeat exposure. Bitcoin rose in, up in people's consciousness in 13, 17. It didn't die and now it's back again. So people are like, okay, this time I have to pay attention to it. I missed out the last two times. It's still around. It seems to be thriving. I should dig in here. So let's talk about what this super cycle will actually look like. So the last few cycles, you mentioned halvings in 2012 uh, and 2016. Then you have bull runs in 2013, 2017, the, two, the years after the halving. Those bull runs looked pretty similar, right? The thing runs up and then it falls like 80%. Do you think that what we're going to get here is just an extended bull run that then falls 80% or does it look actually a little bit different? Yeah. So we think a lot of people ask me, how do you quantify a super cycle? So I, I described it in a qualitative function, like what qualifies it, I think as a super cycle that makes it different. So ultimately a super cycle, I would say is different than a typical Bitcoin cycle. That's basically what the term super cycle means. Now, Digging in on the quantitative side, what does that look like in terms of numbers? I would define it as either having a greater bull run or having a lesser of a bear market. You know, essentially that Bitcoin would, that due to these uh, qualitative characteristics that I described earlier, that Bitcoin's bull run would be really intense. You have the whole world coming to recognize that Bitcoin is gold 2.0 and that increases the price, makes more people aware of it, and then it turns into a mega bull run. Or what we see is a typical bull run, and then there's lesser of a bear market because there's more institutions, there's more knowledge, people are stronger hodlers. So essentially what a super cycle represents is that, that this time is different. Um, I don't think that because this, that because there are so many different things about the environment this time, it would be I would be hard pressed to see that it behaves exactly like all the other bull runs. Maybe it does though. I, I don't think a super cycle is a very likely event. I think it's a I brought it up historically, like I brought it up in 2019 because no one was talking about it. And typically the way that markets work out is whatever everyone's talking about is not what happens. <laughs> it's oftentimes what everyone doesn't expect. And so I felt that if the, this bull run had different characteristics that maybe it could be something different. And that's a possibility, not a, I'm not saying it's a likely outcome. So with a super cycle, like quantitatively on the number side, this would be like, um, Right now, I think we have a lot of analysts saying Bitcoin's going to Bitcoin in this bull run should be between 100 and 300,000 at the peak. This would be like something over like 500,000. You know, I would say like any if Bitcoin hits over 500,000, that would be um, that would signal like a super cycle. Or if we don't have an 80% drawdown in the bear, that would similarly signal that Bitcoin is is in a super cycle. Um, so those would be like my two characteristics of Bitcoin in a super cycle. So it sounds like just to kind of hit you back with that is basically you have two options that could happen in, in this super cycle. One is we do get to what kind of the predictions say, which is that what that $228,000 number, 250, 300, but it's a much flatter uh, kind of return to the mean, a much flatter bear market where you don't have that 80% drawdown or you pump up to 500, 600, 700, 800,000 and there is that harsh drawdown, but you've hit 800,000 on the way up. Do I, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So either a stronger bull run than we expected or a milder bear bear market. 
I'm jumping out of my seat here. If you see me standing up, eight hundred thousand. <laughs> I mean, what what happens though when the world comes to recognize Bitcoin's value? Like it's been largely considered to be a, a weird libertarian ludite currency for such a long time. What happens when everyone FOMOs in, and what happens when central banks start buying? So the super cycle is somewhat predicated on the world. The TLDR is that the world comes to recognize Bitcoin's value. This won't behave the same as all the other cycles. So if that happens, which narratives move so quickly now, and over the next, four, I would say, four to eight months is our, our sweet spot of when we should see the peak of the bull run. Could could be another 12 months, but we will either see if my thesis is validated or invalidated. And again, I don't think it's a likely outcome. I think it's a interesting one that has a low probability, but no one was talking about it back in 2019. Um, so yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens this year and early next year. So let me throw a third option out at you. Why couldn't we? So basically, you have two different types of buyers that have entered the market for the first time ever. One are hedge funds and one are these really long term holders like insurance companies and pensions. Right. So the insurance companies and the pensions, they buy for 10 to 20 year holds. Right. They're putting something in their fund. They're buying a billion dollars of it and they're holding. So that would hypothetically flatten out the bear market. You wouldn't have that big of a drawdown because these these guys are buying and not actually selling when they think the market's overextended. But the counter to that would be you have hedge funds that are more algorithmic, um, high frequency hedge funds that are starting to get into the into the market. And they when the market gets overextended based on their data, it pulls back. So what I was thinking about is you could have a third option, which says instead of this like four year cycle, you just kind of start easing up and you have what we just saw, which is all right, you run up from 20 to 60, pull back to 35, you pull, go up from 35 to 70, pull back to 50, 50 to 100, pull back to 75. And that just continues on. But what I guess, do we need a big bull run and a, and a drawdown? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I definitely think that we're both aligned in thinking that this time is going to be different. Um, yeah, we could certainly see a more smoothed out function of a bull run where it's not so intense. Um, we could see the bull run extending over 12 months versus like the typical four to eight months, which we would expect it to happen within. So yeah, I think there's a lot of different things here. There's a lot of new different participants who are gonna change fundamentally how, that, how we see the price manifested, right? All the buyers and sellers coming together ultimately dictate what the price is. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think that when we look at this cycle, you know, we could see a lot of weird things, right? Like the dip down to 35 or 30 here was, was pretty unprecedented. Most people didn't expect that. At the same time, if we look at the 2017 cycle, there's a very intense dip that happened almost exactly at the same moment after the halving. So, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Um, maybe at the end of the day, <laughs> maybe, maybe, institutions are just feeling it out now and then there's more volatility now and there's way less volatility after the peak of the bull run um you know i think fundamentally what the super cycle describes is that this time will be different and there's a you know there's a there's a chance that it could be an incredible incredible bull run where we see uh, the world come to realize bitcoin's value and, and what happens to the price when when that occurs do you think we eventually see central banks buying bitcoin and how does that play out yeah, absolutely. I don't think it'll be the big central banks at first, um, but I think it'll be some of the smaller central banks and then possibly like China or Russia. I think uh, China and Russia have zero possibility of ever becoming world reserve currencies as no one trusts them. 
Um, I'm not saying that the U.S. is a perfect country. I think the U.S. has a lot of flaws, so I'm not exactly saying that I believe that any country should have all that power of being the world reserve currency. But in terms of their, their ambitions of being a world reserve currency, I don't think anyone would ever want to want to live in a world like that, uh, especially most of the world that isn't communist. So um, that's where I find it very implausible. And they'll, they'll come to the realization that it's extremely implausible that they'll become a world reserve currency. So what's the next best thing? Well, the next best thing is to buy Bitcoin and then have <clears throat> your fiat currency or your government currency backed by Bitcoin um, or just adopt Bitcoin. Because if you're the first mover, you have a significant price advantage where now if anyone else comes in after you, they have to buy it from you at a higher price. So it, the, the game theory is very much like prisoner's dilemma, where if you don't want to be the last one to give up the other one, you want to be the first confederate or the first one to uh, go over to the other side. Because once you do, you've now uh, got a, a very strong advantageous position in, in terms of being first. Hmm. So what you're saying is central banks will come in, they'll, they'll FOMO into the market in the same way that that retail does because they want to buy Bitcoin before their next door neighbor buys it. Precisely. Or even more fun, <clears throat> if we think about how narratives play out, how this will likely play out is that there will be a leak that a big central bank has bought Bitcoin, even if they haven't. But by the time the narrative breaks, it doesn't matter because yep. the world, you'll never go back. You'll always think, well, what if they did? And yeah. all the other participants think, well, what if they did? And if they think that, what if they did? Then they go, well, maybe we should. And that's how this whole process works. So <laughs> it doesn't actually matter who goes first. It just matters that someone believes that someone else might go first. And that becomes credible enough to um, stimulate one of these central banks to go purchase Bitcoin. So moral of the story is we're leaving it to you to uh, start the rumor that a central bank is buying Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to get arrested. I don't even, I don't know if that's an arrestable fine, but I, it won't come from me. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's the, uh, I guess one last note on the central banks. One thing that could be kind of concerning is if you see central banks start buying Bitcoin, they might not have that much capital in inside of the country. What they do have is a currency that's controlled by the government. So you could see some of these kind of emerging markets actually start to print more and more money just to buy Bitcoin. And what obviously who ends up getting screwed here is their citizens, but who ends up winning is the country that ends up holding a lot of Bitcoin. So, I mean, that's kind of like the, the downer take on this, but I could see that playing out. Well, I mean, the citizens ultimately control the country. At the end of the day, it's, it's a kind of a, a weird relationship there, but ultimately the government only has power because the citizens give it power. So the citizens believe that that Bitcoin gives them power too, then it's sort of synergistic where... Um, you know, that, you know, they might, they might devalue their local currency, but then the local currency is backed by Bitcoin. <laughs> so it's a weird, weird mental loop there that you could develop of like, well, let's say they do a, this is called a speculative attack. So either, so basically taking out debt to buy Bitcoin in an increasingly accelerated fashion. Um, but if the debt's backed by Bitcoin, then are they in a better or worse spot than their, than, than the other countries? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned some of the FUD in 2017 was both the Ethereum flipping and um, and uh, Bitcoin Cash. Obviously, Bitcoin Cash went away. I would argue with you. I would say that the Ethereum flipping argument is is like decently hot right now because of what's happening with DeFi. And do, I mean, do you think that the energy FUD going on right now is kind of the 2021 version of Bitcoin Cash? Or you think the energy narrative will just end up withering away because bitcoin cash lasted the entire time if you remember 
So yeah, so I think that the energy fund will be very hard to defeat for Bitcoin. I think mining moving out of China will be the quickest way to defeat it. So I agree with Nick Carter's assessment there. I think that'll be good. Um, you know, I think that the Ethereum flipping narrative of, of DeFi is interesting. Of course, I think like DeFi is interesting. And I plan on covering having a course and a series, not a course, but a series of, of articles about Bitcoin DeFi. Um, but ultimately, so I'm a product guy. I think about what protocol or product that I have, what problem is it solving? Bitcoin's protocol solves one thing very elegantly, the store of value problem. The store of value problem is the largest ham in the world at $100 trillion worth of value. Bitcoin doesn't need to do all these other things like, like DeFi. It's a nice to have, but not a need to have. It's sort of complaining like, oh, well, Apple's interesting as a company, but why don't they, why don't they mine gold or why don't they, why don't they go uh, pump oil? It's like, okay, <laughs> they do one thing and they do it. They do, they have their product and they do it really, really well. Protocols should be the same thing. Protocols solve a problem. Bitcoin's problem that it's solving is storing value. Storing value requires very high levels of decentralization and requires uh, a very intense community focus on preserving that decentralization, on running a node, the governance structure, et cetera, the, the code itself, um, and the consensus mechanism, proof of work. Ethereum is much more willing to embrace new and, and, and kind of more wild technologies that are experimental. I think that is cool that they want to go do that. I fully support them trying out new things like proof of stake and sharding, uh, things that are extremely experimental. Um, and also experimenting with government governance structures with like a founder. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't really have a founder. Satoshi left and never touched any of the money versus uh, Ethereum having a very public founder. Um, and then also like the Ethereum community community likes to change its monetary policy uh, quite often, uh, whereas Bitcoin's monetary policy has never changed. I don't necessarily think those are like Ethereum is fine to do that as the oil or the utility uh, money where it is focused on the utility or like the maximum programmability of its protocol. Changes are required to make those frequent those frequent adjustments. For Bitcoin, Bitcoin's trying to be the rock solid foundation for the financial system as a pristine piece of collateral and store of value. And change there is actually antithetical to accreting value. Um, you don't want the, the building of a skyscraper to be swapped out every every couple of weeks for like a new type of concrete. You pour the concrete and then you set it and let it. Bitcoin is sort of like that. It's it's a very foundational part of this financial ecosystem that should not and, and will not be changed, which means that more trust can develop with it over time, which means that more value will accrue to it. Um, even if proof of stake is successful and it mitigates a lot of these long running concerns, which may or may, may or may not be mitigatable, they will never have enough. It will never has have as much trust as Bitcoin has. You can't program trust in with just code. Trust is developed with time. Time builds trust, especially with humans. We're animals after all, we're not just algorithms. We need to develop trust over time and Bitcoin's Lindy effect of surviving through time and its proof of work surviving through time and its monetary policy surviving through time is not copy pasteable. It's impossible to copy paste that with code that only develops with trust and network effect. And so Bitcoin is the only one that has a, I would say plausible long-term um, narrative around being a, a store of value contender and having a sound monetary policy. Um, so Bitcoin, I think, solely owns that category of storing value. I think Ethereum is, is they, should, they should focus on DeFi stuff. I think that's really interesting. Um, but certainly I, I, find, I don't find them to be competitors at all. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed your little comment on Twitter today, which when the when the uh, Guggenheim founder came out and said Ethereum has more utility, and you replied, uh, "Yeah, aluminum has higher utility than gold. Does that make it a better store of value?" 
Precisely. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion <laughs> over what utility means. Um, storing value, the utility there is storing value. I don't need to go make it super malleable to go build machines and stuff. I, it already does something. <laughs> it already stores value. And everyone's like, well, that's such a boring utility. I'm like, okay, it's a $100 trillion, $100 trillion problem it's solving. Why is that boring? It's the largest TAM in the world. And the whole point is being trustworthy. Like it's, it's all about developing trust in the protocol, monetary policy, and the community enforces that trust. So Bitcoin not changing is a great thing. I, I work in tech. I've worked in tech for eight years. I understand the other side of the argument, which is that, oh, it, it's a technology. Bitcoin isn't really about the tech. The tech is actually pretty old. It's like 30 year. A lot of the tech is like 30 year old tech that was Frankenstein by Satoshi together. It's more of game theoretic incentive modeling and getting humans to trust the protocol. That's actually what the innovation is here. And this isn't like something that you go tweak on a daily basis. You don't, you know, gold was around for 4,000 years. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that a lot of the, the other side of this argument, which is around, we need to change things early and often. That's a great philosophy to have for building product. I've been a product manager. I've been in tech for eight years. Yes, we must always ship new features and services. That's not how you want to build the, the framework of the existing financial system or the, the new financial system. You don't want to build this constantly changing foundation. You want the changes to occur on top of the foundation. The foundation itself is somewhat immutable and unchangeable. Um, at least that's my design philosophy for Bitcoin. I think that's the, the Bitcoin or community has largely rallied behind that design philosophy, which I find to be a very credible one. Um, but I certainly embrace and excited about other uh, coins trying different things. And I think, you know, I'm going to write some content on Bitcoin DeFi, which is exploring DeFi, which again is a nice to have, not a need to have for Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, just, just to kind of see what, what is being developed. So very much embrace, you know, Bitcoin's ethos of pushing innovation to another layer. Like, um, like there's a quite a few different protocols like Sovereign, Sovereign uh, RSK. I think Sovereign's built on RSK and then um, uh, Stacks. So I'm going to be yeah. beginning that exploration shortly. But yeah, Bitcoin is doesn't need any change to work. It's 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 programmed in since day one. Everything's already ready to go. Bitcoin solves its problem as a store of value asset since the beginning, and it does it elegantly and doesn't need to be changed at all. It just needs to survive, and that's what's so beautiful about Bitcoin's risk reward profile is it's not swapping out proof of work for proof of stake. It's not swapping out consensus, consensus mechanisms or monetary policy. It works and works very elegantly. Um, with, our, with all the other ones, you have the inherent risk of these changes leading to some unforeseen outcome, whereas Bitcoin's changes are essentially no change and everyone can look very far in the future and plan on that. One thing that feels inevitable, if this really is a super cycle, I guess super cycle or not is, uh, more and more Bitcoin going into institutional hands. And I'm curious if you think this is a, I mean, you, you so let's, let's use NYDIG, for example, right? NYDIG had that big announcement with FIS, where FIS powers a lot of the infrastructure for banks through NYDIG's integration. You're going to be able to actually, I think, buy Bitcoin through your bank account. I didn't fully understand that. But anyways, it's inevitable that more and more Bitcoin will get holed up with institutions Bad thing, good thing, part of the process. What do you think? Natural part of the process. Institutions were always an, an inevitable participant. Um, now, most of these institutions won't provide you one of the big value props of Bitcoin, which is a seizureship resistance, which means you can store your Bitcoin on your own and no one can take that from you. Now, what these institutional folks will likely do is they have custodial solutions where uh, you trust someone else to custody your coins. 
I don't think this is a bad or good thing. I think people should trend towards self-custody over time if they know what they're doing. Um, but even without the self-custodial aspect, the game theory plays out pretty nicely, right? Like, let's say that 50% of the U.S. population owns Bitcoin and 10% of that is held by custodians. What happens when um, governments try to seize it is you have a huge portion of the population finding that to be egregious breach of their trust. And they'll go enforce that by voting and by other mechanisms. Um, so, of course, in more authoritarian dictator relationships, you don't want to have custodial solutions there ever. <laughs> but in democracies or more Western developed countries, you, there is somewhat of a contract law, property rights, and, and some fundamental understanding of that. And, you know, if governments crack down really heavily and start to seize the assets, that's going to lead to huge civil unrest. Um, so, you know, we can't stop people from choosing the, the easiest option. We can still push people over time to self-custody their coins. And I think that's the best that we can do. I don't think that fundamentally changes Bitcoin security, though. Bitcoin isn't secured by proof of stake or by the hodlers. Bitcoin is secured by the entire community of everyone. Um, you know, if someone has a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin or a million, it doesn't change. It's about who uh, who all wants to run that version of Bitcoin that everyone else agrees with. And you can't you can't buy that. Yeah. How much longer do you think we have for this Bitcoin super cycle or non super cycle? Well, we'll see if my uh, my thesis is right or wrong in the next four to 12 months. Um, that should be enough time for the peak of the bull run to occur and then to see some of the bear markets start to begin. Yeah. What is your um, let's say we don't go into a super cycle. What is your bear case for Bitcoin over the next 12 months if you had to put some sort of price around it? I mean, the bear case would be right now. <laughs> like the bear case would be like we go sideways and then we go into like a like a, yeah. a bear like a like this would be a, a bear case as we go sideways for the rest of the year. Now in 2013 we had two bull runs in one year, ten dollars to two sixty back down to back down to a hundred, then a hundred to twelve hundred at the end of the year, and there was a period of sideways action from like May through September. We could very much go through that, and I wouldn't say that's a bad thing. It's it's if we go sideways for the entire rest of the year, all the way through December, that would be a bad thing. But I think we might actually see a little bit of sideways action here for the next couple months, and then late summer, early fall, that's when things might get exciting again, uh, just like the 2013 cycle. So we could see a play out that way. We could see Bitcoin jump right back. <laughs> I've been looking at it for eight years. You never know what's going to happen with the price. I just look at the long-term macro trends and just hodl on. Yep. I will, uh, I'll get some heat for saying this, but I wouldn't be opposed to a little consolidation so I can get some sleep and uh, everyone can kind of uh, relax on Twitter a little bit. Wouldn't be the worst thing. You know, it's funny. I feel more anxious during the bull runs than I, than I do during the bears. Um, oh, 100%. Because, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of like FOMO. There's a lot of, um, you know, the sirens call of different projects, projects out there. Uh, you also have like um, I'm, I'm a builder, so I work. I lead I lead a user acquisition over at Kraken. So, you know, in a bull run, I'm like, there's so many things that we need to get done. I'm just I, I can't sleep because there's so much I have to get done at work. Because I'm like, I can go sleep after the bull runs over. Because <laughs> there's only so many opportunities like this, and it's such a cool way to learn and grow. I personally find um, marketing fascinating. That's what I do as a profession. And so for me, it's just, uh, you know, embracing that is, is, is kind of a manic, <laughs> a manic uh, work-life balance. But it's certainly fun, though. You know, it's not something I'm dreading or anything like that. It's, uh, it's just there's so much opportunity that uh, there's this anxiety that I'm not going to be able to capture all of it. Yeah, totally. 
All right, Dan, let's start to um, wrap it up here. We're going to record, obviously, or we have part two. Uh, this is going to get released on Thursday, and then part two comes out next week. And we're going to be talking about how to actually earn yield on your Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin DeFi, um, Bitcoin marketing, a whole bunch of other good stuff, action items around your, you know, how to use your Bitcoin. Um, can you just share a bit right now about maybe in the week between right after folks listen to this and the next episode, what kind of action items should they take? Should they, I know you have a newsletter, um, obviously you have a big Twitter. Where can people, you have the course that just came out, where can people kind of start reading more about your thoughts? Yeah, so if you want day-to-day action, like if you want to hear my thoughts on Bitcoin day-to-day, follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dan Held. If you want my longer form thoughts, because tweets don't exactly encapsulate everything I want to say, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll probably enjoy my long-form newsletter called The Held Report. And I'm sure there'll be a link here for you to click. But uh, in The Held Report, we've got I've got a, a deep dive on a variety of different topics. So I've got 25,000 readers of this of The Held Report that I started six months ago. And I write about everything from proof-of-work versus proof-of-stake uh, to a whole bunch of different topics. So if you subscribe to the paid newsletter, you get it every single week. If you go on the free newsletter, you get it once a month. Um, so if, yeah, if you like my thoughts here, that's going to be the, my longer form where I'm fully at, able to explore the ideas. And I'm really, really forward and frank with how I feel about things, which I think make it a very entertaining and, and easy, easy read. Amazing. All right, folks, that wraps it up for this episode. Um, we'll be back again next week with another part two with Dan. Um, if you guys like this episode and you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple, hit the subscribe and obviously go follow Dan and subscribe to his, uh, his sub stack. All right. Until next time. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Dan.